0: Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McClos-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. After a long break, I am back with a new season. I started recording interviews for the season in September. Somehow time got away from me, and here we are in February. Life, work, and procrastination definitely took control of my schedule, but I'm very happy to be back, and I really think you will enjoy the conversations I have coming up. In December, I started a Substack newsletter, also called Su- Sighs and Whispers, which covers many of the same themes as this podcast. You should definitely sign up. It's at laurakitty.substack.com. I send out one free newsletter a week and one paid. All financial support of the newsletter allows me the time to write the newsletter, make this podcast, and do my Instagram, so please do consider becoming a paid subscriber. Early last fall, I had the wonderful opportunity to interview photographer Susan Wood in her home in the Hamptons. I stayed with her for one night, and we did the interview over two days. I ended up with around four hours of audio, which took me a while to edit down. So it's still quite long, um, but I think these two hours will be worth your time. Split it up and listen over several days if you have to. So much of what I am seeking to learn about in the interviews for Sighs and Whispers is about how cultural creatives have followed their passions in an order to mold their ideal lives and careers what choices have they made, where did those choices lead them, what was unexpected, what was better than they ever could have expected. Susan Wood is a New Yorker born and bred. She began taking photographs for fun as a teen um, before studying art at Sarah Lawrence. After leaving Yale's graduate program, where she studied under Joseph Albers, Susan began working as a photographer in New York City. It was the 1950s, and the photography world was really coming into its own, and Susan was at the center of it meeting and becoming friends with all of the greats. In our conversation, she discusses all of the serendipitous situations and all the hard work that brought her to have a successful photography career within just a few years. Over the decades, Susan photographed for everyone and truly across all genres, fashion, interiors, portraits, food, travel, crafts, documentary, and movie stills. Susan did it all at a time when there were very few female photographers in the industry. It was truly a boys club with Editors often only calling her to cover subjects that were considered women's issues. Years later, she realized that all of this work that had been relegated to the women's pages was actually an archive of many of the most important women of the latter half of the 20th century. The feminist icons, the writers, the movie stars, the politicians. This resulted in her 2018 book, Women, Portraits, 1960 to 2000. Amongst the magazines she worked for were Vogue, New York Magazine, Ladies Home Journal, Mademoiselle, People, Harper's Bazaar, Good Housekeeping, and Glamour. She also spent several years researching and writing an investigative journalism piece on the Dr. Feelgood's working in New York City, which made her into a media star. In this conversation, we cover all aspects of her childhood, her photography career, her creative process, and the many celebrities she's photographed. We also discuss ageism and how one day the telephone just stopped ringing what it's like to go from being in high demand to forgotten overnight, and then how she dealt with that as a creative person. If you've listened to past interviews and read some of my newsletters, you'll know that this is a subject that often comes up, and one that I'm very interested in correcting through my own work. Now in her 80s, Susan is still photographing and actively engaged with her archive. She's wonderful, funny, and has a great memory for stories of a world now gone. If you're interested in photography, fashion, or cultural history from the 1950s on, I think you'll really love this conversation. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so that more people can find their way to this podcast. On the website, I put together a huge slideshow of her work, so please go check it out while you listen. It's at sizewhispers.com. Enjoy. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today, to meet with me. I have been a f- huge fan of your work for years and um, I'm not really sure when I found your work first but you know after a time I kept realizing by looking through my old magazines Like I could tell your work, like I could see. Really? Yeah, especially the way that you captured, you know, the individual. It seemed like more than just a stiff portrait that you really got a sense of the person that you were photographing. And then also all of these wonderful food photography and all these other different genres that I found your work in.
1: It's very interesting that you you say that. Because just the other day, I gave a copy of my woman's book to Lee Grusin, who's a writer herself, for newspapers and magazines. But she sent me a note, and I was just thrilled because she got it. Like you got it. That is what I try. I try to find something that is a spe- that is an emotion or an expression of the intelligence and the spirit. Of the person or the thing. Mm-hmm. Things too speak to me. I did some terrific work for knitting books, knitting and sewing, and in fact I got the job with British Vogue on the basis of some fashion I did for this very homey kind of uh, magazine. But I had just these first print-ups to check the colors, I had no, no type on it, so you didn't know what the fashion was for. And it was very generic fashion because it was the things that people could make and make easily or knit easily, and, uh, or maybe not so easily. But I had this role with me, and when I had the opportunity to meet the editor of British Vogue, who was Beatrix Miller mm-hmm. at the time, yeah, I had this with me, and I it to her, she thought it was fresh and wonderful when I come work for them. Little did she know it was for you know a nothing kind of magazine that you could hardly call a fashion magazine, but it was very high spirited and fresh, fresh looking. It was out of doors with models that were not the most famous, but I well some of them were because we could be, as editorial uh, the same editor that did that had also done a lot of fashion for say Ladies' Home Journal. Mm-hmm. And we'd get the top models. They were committed to responding to editorial at very low rates. And so we'd have the top models, or well, we'd have just very ordinary, you know, I, I had rejected models at first, but I, dummy that I was, walked and said, oh, I'd like to work with real people. <laughs> and of course, I didn't realize how really wonderful it was to work with these models. Mm-hmm. They were, well, most of them were amazing but some were dictatorial, you know, they wanted to set themselves up in a stiff pose and have you snap and then they'd give you another pose. So I didn't want that, but I didn't realize how good some of the other models could be. So anyway, I got that job with, uh, for at least a season with British Vogue and that was part of my English London experience.
0: Yeah. and that was 1970s yeah,
1: yeah 60s yeah it was really really nice you were born in New York City correct born born in New York in the lying-in hospital at Presbyterian Cornell had just opened one of the first women's birthing hospitals hmm. in the United States so I was one of the first babies I was born that year 1932 when they they started and uh, Um, I grew up in New York City we'd go away summers different places but uh, we always had uh, wonderful places to live Uh, my parents collected art go around to the art galleries with them and they uh, were giving me the uh, education of a proper young lady dancing school Mm -hmm. the art lessons were wonderful at an early age my father would Deposit us with an artist on Saturday morning, and we'd paint. My sister and I, we we were always two. Whatever I was three years younger, and we shared these experiences. So um, then there was dancing school. We had to learn how to foxtrot and you know be polite. <laughs> what else was there? There were there were a bunch of lessons. I didn't do well with the horses at that time. My sister did. Um, and uh, that was trotting around Central Park. Uh, And my mother's a wonderful role model. She was involved with the Parents' Association Then, as things developed, she began to be concerned about after-school activities for the safety of children. She was a great believer in public education, but if I hadn't made and passed the exam for Music and Art or Bronx Science or one of those, uh, she would have sent me, to, they would have sent me to private school. So they, they believed in it up to the point. And she was very influential in politics and uh, helped to elect an anti Tammany mayor of New York and uh, had really brought in a, a vote, the Puerto Rican vote. She had stolen it from whoever it belonged to prior to that. And she became um, very significant in the Hispanic community, representing their interests. So she, she was a, an activist and she was charismatic and very attractive. So her form of uh, uh, charm worked very well. Where in the city did you live? We first we lived on West End Avenue mm-hmm. and that's the west side at about 97th Street and then we lived on the east side we overlooked two rivers, you know, first the Hudson, and then the East River, then we lived on Gracie Square. And that was a wonderful duplex overlooking the Triborough Bridge, and, and the Mayor's Mansion, Carl Shirt's Park, a very pretty neighborhood, very windy, uh, and a big walk to the nearest subway.
0: Mm. What did your father do?
1: He was in real estate, commercial real estate, mostly, in New York. And he was very imaginative and inventive, and our dinner table often were discussions about business. He was the first to put artists into loft buildings. Mm. The loft building tenants, because of labor costs, that were... New York was a, a manufacturing city. They had moved out, moved south to cheaper labor. These lofts were empty and he began to put artists in, and then various laws came down about only one, you were only supposed to have one non-commercial resident in a building, and somehow he, they, they managed to get laws changed over time. But he was imaginative about you know, what tenants might be and what spaces and so on and so forth. And there was conflict where my, my mother was representing tenants' interests and. He was re- he was with the real estate board representing the businessman, the real estate man's interests, and they were in conflict. <laughs> but he was supportive of her efforts, and he did a lot of she and they made a lot of parties for candidates for all sorts of reasons, you know, celebrations. Even when there was some problem with the Dominican community, they had some people were and fear for their lives in that political spectrum, sleeping on our floor for a few days in our living rooms, gathered there to find safety. So, So I was, you know, I had some contacts that I could call on out there in the world, and I saw more of the world than an average person in New York, you know, from sort of the, the top to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So that was nice. And then they were always for education and, and always were, were, were supportive, but they were getting a little nervous as I went off to graduate school at Yale that I was going to stay in academia and not meet some nice husband who could support me. Mm-hmm. They did see the... They, they I don't think ever thought of my career as something that could support me, I think underneath it all, they saw it as an interlude and and they weren't familiar with photography as a or journalism as possibly being a career they They saw art my sister did art, they saw art as what the goal was, and that could be done in your studio although they they bought paintings for galleries. I don't think they thought beyond the achievement of something artistic and maybe then in some distant way exhibiting, but they never thought of the business even if you're an artist in a studio, there is the business of art of getting out and presenting yourself and your work. So I went off I went to Sarah Lawrence Music and Art, which was a city school, and very lively education. I had done my two favorite things were dancing. I loved ballet, and early on, they stopped the ballet because I was getting so thin, and I was getting so good that it was suggested I they take me down to the... join the ballet school connected to the ballet theater or the ba, you know school of ballet, and put me on point. And basically, they thought that ballerinas led unhappy lives as spinsters. And they didn't see that in my future and they wanted to protect me from that. So the ballet stopped, but that interested me. And then the art interested me a lot too. So um, uh, they they were too, um, but the weird thing was I was very good at math and very good at science. So, but I didn't take that course. I didn't know, I, I didn't know that it had such a future.
0: When did you dis- get interested in photography? Because you were painting first, I, right? Yes,
1: yes, and all the way through, and I kept going back and forth between painting and photography. I think I got a serious camera at 15, or 14, uh, but it was one of those things like a Rolleiflex that you look down mm-hmm. into. Uh, I didn't do much with it. I did bring it on our world tour, but... That was, I just mid-year graduated from music and art. And I had won a lot of scholastic awards. And I had a little pile of money. Uh, I really never thought about money. I had an allowance, but I had pretty well everything I wanted. Uh, And uh, I had an allowance, but it, it didn't cover very much. But I gave my, when we went on the world tour, I gave my mother the stash of money that I had, told her to hold on to it for me. I was now, I should have been much more independent about that. I was now 16 going on 17, but I had skipped a lot. They had done some sort of an IQ test where they had to push people ahead Mm -hmm. in the public schools. I, I graduated high school at 16, so I was a little early, uh, and I looked very young. And I had an older sister who I just followed around. Anyway, on that trip, I liked what I was doing, and I finally bought a camera. I bought a Leica when we were in Germany. So then I began using that. And I liked that better. I liked the quickness of the response and what my eye was seeing at my eye level. so. That was it. And then when I got to Sarah Lawrence, I was going to Sarah Lawrence that fall. I picked up the the camera. I also had met, was it that year? Yeah. I had met some uh, of the people on, boys on the Harvard Crimson who used to play uh, baseball in Central Park who are now in New York working for magazines and newspapers. And I liked the journalists and I liked what they were doing and they were very exciting and stimulating. When I got to Sarah Lawrence, somehow I ended up with uh, another girl taking over the yearbook as a magazine. We gave the graduated class a spread and then we did did stories like Life Magazine was doing. You know, either about what was going on on campus or or uh whatever I did that was spontaneous and court, and I knew nothing i I went into the dark room and, and i didn 't know what I was doing uh, and I picked up the phone and called Bert Glynn, who was a photographer uh, as part of this group of uh of, of former crimson uh, journalists, and he gave me the phone number of somebody who worked in the life dark room. And he had a very heavy Italian accent, but I said, what do I do? Nothing's coming out. I, I put the negative in, and I light through it, nothing's coming out. And he said, give it more time. Simple principle. I said, how much time? And it turned out to be quite a bit more time. And it almost matched the principle that I learned from Joseph Albers about making a color bar, which would have steps between black and white it doesn't go by just adding the same amount each time to the color. It's 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 it, whatever. It's called geometric progression, where it's uh, one times one, then then that's two, two times two, which is four, four times four is sixteen. So the quantities of light seem to work that way on photo paper. So it required a lot of light, and and then. Um, so, but I had a very graphic eye. so And and also, I was looking for either a moment or something where I thought the person looked attractive or action or something. I, there were certain standards that I looked for. And it, they were very lively. Uh, I did that for about three years, three or four years. Uh, then the school started asking me to go on on events that were happening. Like, I went to... Uh, the Carolinas and the TV in South with a, a, group who were doing a sociology course. It wasn't my course, but I was the photographer, so it was it added to my. My mixed up learning experience at Sarah Lawrence. So that was good. But I was painting all this time too. Abstractions. Well, sort of, sort of. Um, I would say, reality is abstractions. They had an element. I, I was very influenced by. Uh, say Yeats poetry and the mystical, mm. and so I—I I, it was sort of expressionistic.
0: What, uh, what art did your parents collect, and did that influence your work?
1: No, it was more post Ashcan, American okay. post Ashcan school. You know, like Milton Avery, mm-hmm. Kinyoshi, uh Think people who were still unknown or or little known, and then some were successful. Somewhere, and they weren't into total abstraction, but the habit of going to art galleries stuck with me, so that I would go and Mm -hmm. see what was going on.
0: With photography, once you actually got that, you know, the negative developed, the print developed, did it feel like an instant? Like, oh, this is my this. Like, did you feel instantly?
1: This is my my career. Yeah. Yeah,
0: this is my thing.
1: No, and I wasn't too interested Eventually, I was not too interested in the dark room. Mm-hmm. I felt everything should, could be done uh, on site, and but I did like the magic of light. I did like shooting into the light better than uh, so it's rounded, mm-hmm. and I did. Uh, I took to color very well uh, because I didn't like the Kodachrome kind of. Picture that you see, you would see at Grand Central Station, of you know, the bluest sky and the, 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 the most colorful leaves and everything, you know, very sharp. I like the way light broke up and made diamonds or made uh, fuzzy pictures because of the way it broke up. It, it, like in some of the early movies, there was this magical. Light around Marlene yeah. Dietrich. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that kind of light, and that's what I, I strove for. So, I, I wouldn't, this is a lovely picture of you, be sitting here looking at you this way, but I would probably turn around and go the other way where half the light was on you, mm-hmm. or, or uh, be behind you, or to the side of you. So, uh, it's just a taste. Yeah, it was, it was a, a toss up.
0: When you graduated Sarah Lawrence, did you immediately go on
1: to Yale, or what was your plan, or how did you... Well, I had a summer. We were in Westport area, Connecticut, and I was painting and enjoying everything. I was not doing photography, and I entered uh, one of my pictures in uh, an all-New England show. It's quite abstracted, so it so it, a girl at a table, but it had triangles and squares, all sorts of things, very yellowy, and uh, and it won one of the the All New England award. And then I thought about the fall. I had been thinking about, it, but I hadn't done anything about it. So I thought, well, why don't I try graduate school? And I knew that Albers was at uh, Yale. And I, so I called and asked if I was too late yes, I was too late to apply, but bring a portfolio and come up and see us next week. This was the end of the summer. So I did that, and Albert looked at the portfolio, and he said uh, that you, you know he criticized it. it was very interesting. And he said, "You know, half the learning that one does in a school is from your fellow students." And I made an effort to get a diverse student body. I think he was just starting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you'd be a good addition. Okay, you're in, you can come, you know, he gave me the date, fill out these forms. And I was in. So I was very happy about that. And we had Marvin Israel was there. Uh, David Bailey was my contemporary. He does very realistic, I don't know if you know his work. Mm -hmm very realistic. We, we felt, I don't know that we felt, he probably didn't like my work. I didn't mind his work, but I, didn't, I thought he was very tight. Uh, and, but we nevertheless wanted to be apart from everybody. Else. And we found an empty studio. This was in the old building. I don't know if they've moved out of there or not. But we found that and we took that. So we didn't talk to each other as much, but we were friends. Who else was there? Well, there was Albers at his brilliant color course. He was he was all suited up like a banker, Albers. But he had a certain sensitivity. It could be quite funny. And we would do these co- abstract color things to sort of use color. And there was one young man in the class, and he had these cards with uh, sort of uh, these... Pictures with uh, oh, uh, lavenders and pinks and and purples and he looked at them and he said, "Hmm, very boudoir, but very nice." <laughs> I mean, he saw so much in abstraction. It was it was really wonderful. Yeah, I got through that year. I think I had one uh, ski accident, and uh, that put me out of commission for a little bit, but I was through the year, and then I, my mother was sort of upset about this continuing involvement with academia. I decided to go out in the world, and so I made a portfolio, and whenever I went to Life Magazine, the woman who ran the contributions department would Oh, I got a job. I got a job with John Mealy, who was the first one to use strobe light. He had helped the inventor to work on it. He was an engineer at MIT, and he became a photographer. Very interested in the arts, very close friend with uh, the Juilliard String Quartet and everything cultural. He was like their Life magazine's photographer, cultural conscience, and I became his assistant. Oh, I think my first job actually was with Life magazine in the lab, cutting up the negatives. Then they found I could sort of put together how to find lost negatives of some of uh, their important photographers Mm -hmm. because I could figure out the possible different subjects that might have gotten misfiled under or something like that. Uh, And I got to meet some of the photographers and assist them. There was June Mickey of... uh, it, from Japan. He had been a very successful war photographer and friends of all the photographers. Uh, I went out with Elliot Ellisoffen, who was very technically unbelievable in lighting, using strobe so That was a, something of the Holland Tunnel where there was moving lights as well as flashed and other things. Very Technically very difficult thing to do. Uh, and then with that, that merely... Needed an assistant. He was to continue to do something about uh, a jazz movie, and now this was with Dave Brubeck and and his his quintet, Dave Brubeck and and who was the wonderful uh, saxophonist? Can't remember no. uh, Anyway, I came to assist there. and They had a, basically an assistant's job there, and he was very supportive with my parents, who are now getting more and more nervous <laughs> about this budding <laughs> career. <laughs> and he'd come and say something like, do you know if you look into your nest and visit the little bird you thought it was, but an eagle, you have to let them fly. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so uh, I would bring people home for you know, we, we had a very, usually a very interesting dinner table and conversations and people meeting. Uh, so that was helpful. Others, photographers who were part of it, would try to fix me up with young photographers they knew, and so on and so forth. All of the, the, the emphasis was trying basically to fix me up to find a mate. It was interesting. And then I showed my work to Brodovich and you'd bring a portfolio for portfolio week, and you'd leave it there and either you get a note back saying "Thank you very much, please continue showing us your work. I'm sure that everybody got that. but this one's this one they called me up and asked me to come in so I came in and he sat me the you know the 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 waiting room was whatever it was, and then they ushered me in and I sat there, and they, they, they sort of clapped, you know, his fingers. And an assistant art director brought out these papers, and he had laid out my Europe photos in quite a large, about four-page spreads. One did make it on a double-page spread that I had taken of the most photographed place in the world, which is St. Mark's Square in Venice. But it was different. It was night totally night. It was the other end of the square and it was like a necklace of little light jewels and reflections in the stones of the thing. And it ran. But it didn't run for three months. In the meantime I was working for in the lab of Life magazine and I'd go out at what was lunchtime and take my portfolio around or go around in the Time Life building and see what I saw Sports Illustrated. That was the only one that was just starting, and and they they, they gave me some little assignments like uh, uh, a bubble gum contest with kids or uh, sports in s- schools. You know, so it's so young young stuff, which was wonderful, but uh, it was upsetting to other people in the lab who had been working there, didn't have the educational background I had, and were waiting their turn to maybe become a photographer, maybe a sports photographer. And uh, I learned that with a time clock, it isn't something that you just could sign out on and then come back to. It was just in and out. So as they were about to fire me, I said, it's okay. <laughs> I'll leave peacefully. <laughs> so, But then, so there was this very interesting experience. With Brodovich, and he took me in to meet uh, the editor in chief, and it was it was very responsive, and I, I got did get some early assi- assignments, but not much. Then similar thing happened with Lieberman, where they invited me in and showed me uh, some layouts they had done. I had that summer met some people from the Hamptons, East Hampton. All of these things, many of these things were. Just coincidence accident someone who lived upstairs from a studio that I was renting uh, was in Oklahoma he was an actor Mm -hmm. singer we'd meet on the stairs or something and and I ran into him as they were about to go for a summer weekend uh, to present what was Tevye and his daughters to do some fundraising and that eventually became a Fiddler on the Roof. I was sort of taking charge. I had also worked at Sarah Lawrence. I became the stage set designer for an off-campus production, which had some of the veterans and seniors in it. But I was a freshman, but I was doing that. So Sarah Lawrence gave me a lot of opportunities I'm not sure I got the best out of it because academically, I'm sure they, I missed reading a lot of books I should have read. Uh, but my experience there was amazing, what can I say? <laughs> a lot of things are just serendipity. Anyway, Lieberman did that, but in that, this whole thing they did, uh, um, when I went out with Tevya and his daughters to do this, help them stage it, I was really just along as baggage, you know, why don't you come, it's a summer, it's a lovely place, but I was telling them how to move around. <laughs> don't ask me why I was so bossy, but I did that and what and I thought I would work. And um, the people out here in Amagans, it was Amagans, uh I was invited back, I was invited to stay over. So I did. I had the most wonderful time, I it, it was the art community out here. But I also had been working on a major story of my own on uh, a school for autistic children. That finally found a home at Coronet, that that was like a Reader's Digest Coronet magazine. And that ran for about 12 pages, that's quite quite a number of pages, but Mm -hmm. they're small pages. It ran uh, very big and I was asked to come on uh, TV and radio to talk about it. And I also met what became my future husband, who was the production director of the company, which was Esquire, that had Car and mm-hmm. and Esquire and so on. Uh, so things were beginning to move along with that. How did I get to Esquire? I don't know, but I did get to Esquire in that period, and I did something with the members of the different clubs at Harvard as our models, as well as sort of hanging around Harvard Square and chasing attractive girls on bicycles because we thought they'd be good models. And my compatriot, and that was the art director of of Esquire that that's Robert Benton, who eventually became a movie director and did Places of the Heart and Twilight, amazing films. But we were running around after bicycles, girls, it was crazy, (laughs) (laughs) to get models. Um, And film was not very fast then, and the weekend we were shooting was all very overcast. So I was pushing, that means getting it overdeveloped, shooting beyond its capacity high-speed ectochrome. So everything had a very grainy look. But I was doing a lot of that. Oh, when Harper's Bazaar had hired me, they had hired me for a wine tasting with wines that went back to 1890. And they had very important dignitaries there. It was my first assignment of this. So after we'll having set the table and made the grapes look right coming out of the baccarat bowls, and I ran home to change, came back, and I was shocked as I finished sort of taking some pictures of it, say, where's my seat? I didn't see a chair there. Uh, I didn't realize the photographer's not invited to the dinner. (laughs) It was a very famous writer, name escaping me now, English, who then, well, we didn't think an empty chair would look good Mm -hmm. in a photograph, but come sit and take half of my seat, which I did. (laughs) And then he called and invited me to be join him and some other people at some sort of important dinner, but i I couldn't go that night, so it was it was very interesting how one thing led to another, and my um I thought if the editors were sitting there, why aren't I? It
0: seems like you just sort of kept putting yourself out there. Did you feel like total confidence in your work
1: or? Well, I didn't know how it was going to come out. No, I I felt confidence in my eye, but it's terrible to say the film and the, the equipment couldn't keep up with me.
2: Hmm.
1: It can now, except I have some fault. I was doing then what all of us do now with the computer. Con. It is. I think the camera could probably find something in it. Uh, I loved natural light and I felt I could do it. I was nervous when it came to looking at the results and sometimes thought it, you know, wished that it was technically better. But on second thought, there's something about often a good picture of mine, the best, the one that had just the right mood and gesture was a little blurry, that's because I saw that that was the picture and I pushed the button so hard it shook in my excitement. Mm-hmm. I, could, I did learn to correct that, getting a tripod and getting to use lights, but every that is all sort of pre-rehearsed in a way, when you then have people come into this set stage. Mm-hmm. But that worked too. It was tricky. Uh, I I didn't always have... No, I worried very much that I hadn't gotten it, that there'd be some technical flaw. Um, and there often was. And then during that period, they were not putting enough silver in the silver surface of the, the, the film, and it wasn't coming out as well as it should. But I kept in mind the wonderful Stiglitz story of photographing... Isadora Duncan at uh, the Parthenon and at, at the Neptune Temple in Greece, where everything was perfect. She was a perfect robe, she threw her arms up, sun was shining coming in the, you know, right behind her in a very dramatic way. And he grabbed the brownie off a kid and took the picture and bought the brownie from him, the brownie camera, and it was one of those great pictures. So, It isn't the instrument, there are moments. Mm -hmm. There are moments. I don't always think that Henry Cartier-Bresson's decisive moments were so bloody decisive. (laughs) Very often they were. Then it was amazing to see a mixture of location and person Mm -hmm. in a portrait. And there were some moments, but there might have been more and it it was more a juxtaposition of things and the relaxation of the subject or the trust that the subject had in him uh, that uh, it had many reasons that made the photograph good but it always it wasn't necessarily the moment yeah you know, there are all kinds of reasons for a photograph reasons for photography good and i think i tried for all of them right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you should do, yeah. right?
0: But I think you did
1: try and that. I mean, you achieve. recognize yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I think that that's why your images stand out as yours, like I can see them and recognize them. It's, it's marvelous.
1: is like all this wonderful feedback is coming <laughs> to me. You're inspiring me because there are a couple of books I'd like to do if I have time and one of them is body of work where I go through the various stylistic things I did mm-hmm. food you know fashion, different kinds of middle class fashion upper class fashion people women uh, men, and so on and uh, you noticed that in all these different things still lives objects you know yeah I, I I would try. No object was too small for me to care about it and try to find the best of its class. Like uh, there's a story of uh, uh, Irving Penn looking for the right lemon and having a basket of a hundred and picking out one. <laughs> so I cast, I cast my peaches and pears and and objects too. You know, you were shooting at. a little bit for Harper's and a little bit for Sports Illustrated and then how did you make the next sort of move in your career? Well, Look was significant and I made a big effort to get there and I brought people. Then, I don't know how people get ahead and get started with the few magazines that are around to do stories. You can't I don't know how you get to an art director or a picture editor now. Everything is so sealed for protection reasons that instead of having to sort of be able to poke your head in on somebody, you have to go through a lot of hoops to get there. Am I right about this? Yeah. I wish I, I just don't know how they manage. So I did things for, some things for people. I would make suggestions. New York Magazine became very important to me. And we had lunch in those days. You know, like you got to know an editor or the editor or so on. And you'd go to lunch and you'd make some suggestions of stories. Like I would come with a list to Clay Felker, Mm -hmm. who ran New York Magazine. How did I meet Clay? Well, one art director led to another art director. And you began to get into the industry.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, I come with a list. We talk about it and say, you know, do that. that, that sounds like a good one. And uh, the Dr. Feelgood was very famous and big and I, I missed up on a lot of cues there, including with Lieberman, because there were book office and this and that and I decided I'd try to do one and I didn't know how to do a book. I I sort of wasted a year and it fell apart. Mm-hmm.
0: Had you done any other writing before that? Because like, that just, was like sort of
1: investigative journalism. Yeah, no, I, and it took a long time, and I, I uh, you know, had help from good editors. But it was, uh, even now, it just takes me too long to write. I go off on tangents and so on. I had a very good editor on my uh, woman's book who got me writing and just said, do it. I'll edit it. You do it. hmm and that worked out very well, you know, once I sort of freed up, got the freedom mm-hmm. to not worry about syntax or one paragraph following another or how we got into this. That. I don't know, I, I have a quirk about it. I don't think I write badly, but it's, it takes me too much. Too much not writing while I'm writing. Photography, you get it then. There is the moment. <laughs> and look, I come to them with story ideas, and... And sometimes they come back with one of their own. And I think Look had me categorized as doing young people starting off in careers or school. And there was one reporter, one of their editors, Henry Ehrlich. Somehow they tie, connected me to him and we did high society together. We did a wonderful Peter Duchin story that involved, Peter Duchin was staying with Lily Pulitzer and Peter Pulitzer in Palm Beach. So we were in Palm Beach to do them well. It was interesting. It was one of my first big stories with him. Being a woman photographer, there weren't that many and you traveled as a pair, a writer and a photographer. And so you had to have a writer and most of them were men who was willing to travel with a woman. Some were reluctant to do that. Some were more, those who had wives who had careers were more understanding that this is a career move and it's okay. So there was that early, I don't think you have it so much now. I think it's taken for granted that you're going to, for the most part. One of the interesting things, there was Mary Madden, she's a photographer now, was a picture editor at Look. She gave me a side. She gave me the Daniel Ellsberg side where the country, the FBI was hunting for him. And Daniel Ellsberg and I met, got onto the, you know, the train to Washington or to Maryland, went to see other people's sister, Bacallus, or whatever her name was, in hiding, where they called a press conference with those people they could trust to come Mm -hmm. to where they were hiding out. Um, And we came back, came to my studio, he loved photography, and uh, uh, we never were caught. You know, we could have got off to jail. Wow. On plain sight. I think that was, it might have been people. I carried my cameras in, it was a Indian wove Indian, it was was Guatemalan or something, it was, or Mexican, it was a a woven reed made of, not straw, but um, wicker Mm -hmm. backpack. I also had a Louis Vuitton case for cameras too. That was a different era. Just travel and do things. Oh, there were wonderful things for Vogue, doing Wine Country, Alice Waters, and uh, there were such wonderful people to meet. That involved food and people mm-hmm. and place, you know, was uh, all of which I loved. Interiors, I did a lot of interiors. I wanted to be a working, self-supporting photographer. Um, any job that I could get. Of course, I looked in the best places where I wanted to work, and things happened.
0: Because a lot of this work seems to have been traveling. How, how much of a so- social life did you have at home? Also, when was your first marriage? Is oh, that going on?
1: No, you know, the first marriage, just as I began to get going, I was full of upset. You know, I, a turning point was getting some movie work, and that was, again, coincidence, I had done for Sports Illustrated a Harvard-Yale game and I got a very sensational picture in the stands of this young man in a cap and somebody in a fur coat. Some play had just been played and there was exuberance, they were leapt up the cigar, almost fell out of this guy's mouth, their hands were up and it was a terrific picture expressing this moment Mm -hmm. and he had a cigar, so it ran. Harvard-Yale game, hardly beat for, for Sports Illustrated. They weren't interested in the Ivy League, but that, that made the cut. And then the Cigar Institute, a PR firm called the Cigar Institute, which would send photographers a check for $100 if they did a photograph, got a photograph published of someone with a cigar. So they sent me $100, and I thought that was so nice, thoughtful that I made a beautiful 14 by 17 print, beautiful black and white print of that picture, and sent it to signed it and sent it to them with thanks. I think the picture cost me nearly that to print. But anyway, they framed it, and it hung above the president's desk of that firm. He really liked it. And Howard Hawks, they were representing Howard Hawks and Paramount, and they were looking, Howard Hawks liked to have a real th- person for for being portrayed in his movies so this was a photographer who was photographing wild animal catching in Africa Elsa Martinelli would play the part and John Wayne was the lead and it was last minute they were looking for a photo- a woman photographer and some guy who would work for the cigar it's the time that I sent them the picture his name was Saul I don't remember his last name now he remembered me and the name, and they called me and said, "Would I meet? They had someone coming to New York. Would I meet him and see if that would work out?" And I did. Everyone was being very negative about me going to work for Hollywood, especially my father. I felt it was full of nepotism. I said, oh, "No, this is new Hollywood." He said, "Well," he said, "Get some money, get money on a round trip ticket before you leave. Get get some advance." So I did that. I said I have to have an advance and a round-trip ticket, and it was the highest amount I'd ever been paid. And it was supposed to be for maybe um, three weeks. Well, I stayed six months, and the picture took forever, because it had a match-up sky, and the natives would burn off grass and it would get too mm. too foggy, and they didn't mind being there. It got very boring, a, a, a nepotism, Howard Hawks had a girlfriend who was a photographer, Elsa Martinelli had a famous Parry Match guy who was her boyfriend, and they tried to keep me away from any good scenes or getting anywhere or anything, and Howard Hawks tried to fire me and I thought that was ridiculous, I would just been paid in advance, I had to do something for him that felt immoral. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was quite complicated, but things worked out in the end, and I got some terrific pictures. It, it was very interesting. That impressed my uh, editors at magazines. The, Mademoiselle gave me a Woman of the Year award. Ten Women of the Year. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was interesting, and that led to other movie things because I got them a lot of. If I couldn't do the the star. I Did the beautiful second star, you know a little off the movie set story of her in Africa, or i did I just found ways about it, something about a rhinoceros or a little tiger or something, uh, or a countess who was our our uh, uh, contessa who was a wrangler animal wrangler, or anyway was 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 civilizing the little little baby. They weren't tigers; they were leopards. Leopards. So, so uh, I got space in Vogue, and space, and and look, life, Argosy, Sports. So, so I sort of uh, did what I was supposed to do. Lots of things just happened. One one thing led into another. So you don't know that about careers until you're in them. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you have bad luck. I had good luck.
0: Yeah, i've seen the pictures in vogue of the contessa and they're <laughs> wonderful before we got onto that i'd asked you about your first marriage oh
1: yes that felt that was falling what he was an alcoholic even before we were married he acted up and yeah so that was breaking up and and when i came back from I think I went on another movie to Leonard, but I was in the process of of leaving because he, he, he was uh, um, um, abusive, and so I really, I guess it was the alcoholism. So it was good I left, and uh, so then I was free and I, I met people I dated. Uh, and I wasn't married for a very long time, but I did have uh, a main guy who was very uh, funny, and and uh, there were men in my life. Yeah. Had your par-
0: had your parents been happy about your first marriage? Had they expected no. you? Okay. <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> in fact, when I called them up, what he was being sort of unreasonable i couldn't quite understand what he was objected to or what the whole philosophical thing was i said do you mind if i call my parents and they come down and and you can give your complaints about me to them let's see what they say and they came second they came down they they only lived you know two miles away not even that they came down and they thought he was crazy and they confirmed they were very understanding. I mean, we had such a big, grand wedding at the Plaza Hotel. What I did and what I wore. <laughs> a wonderful headdress. It was made by Lily Dashay. It was pink, too. Oh, wow. They covered my hair. And it was just a, a, a sheath, a chiffon, you know, a layer, mm-hmm. just a multi-layer of chiffon sheath with no interruptions, you no know, belt, no waist thing, just just hung off my body nicely. Matching pink shoes. (laughs) Sounds beautiful. (laughs) It was beautiful. I've had a very, very lucky, very privileged life. And I could support myself. And something very nice happened in New York Magazine, which was uh, one of the owners, Bob Tobit, uh, ran a fund. He was a a financial person, Wall Street, uh, for the writers and artists of the magazine, where you could put little bits of money in and it'd be invested in, in um, maybe higher risk than just having a savings account mm-hmm. and it grew, and that was very very helpful, very helpful it 's interesting things that get out in the world you don 't know what 's going to happen, just try to get some some you know, what? I I did a talk in Glasgow this two years ago. I was there for the film festival, just before the pandemic started, and a show of the, the movie work, because I did do movie work. What I told the young people was, it might be very hard at the beginning, and if you could find anyone in any way to give you the tiniest bit of support so you can continue until you get your first jobs, But make do it, and my my parents were very generous. If I needed some money, they they helped me. Mm -hmm. So, but then I I I I was doing okay, and then magazines folded. I never was big in advertising. Uh, Art directors retired; they wanted their own new people. So you run out of style. Then I was getting very big in the food and interior business, and a uh, uh, husband got uh, fourth-stage fourth stage cancer. I might have a, a setup of a, a chef, chef's assistant, stylist, tabletop clothes, all of this for these productions. You couldn't just cancel out. Mm-hmm. So I retreated for a while. And there are a lot of things that can happen that alter, uh, of course, including just uh, the people who hired you will retire. Mm-hmm. New people want their own their own discoveries and, and, and styles change. However, I am enjoying going through the archive, you know, making that the woman's book came mm-hmm. out of what that archive. I, I wasn't thinking of doing a woman's book but I realized there were all these assignments that I had had, and they might have been, like, at the time, maybe that was considered non-essential news, and they gave it to me, but I got to, to photograph some incredible women, and then I, if I met incredible women, I asked to photograph them.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I've always noticed is your ability to sort of capture the person in their space, you know, so that yeah. it's, interior is as revealing of them as yeah. to the person. Were you attracted to spaces oh, as yes, well? Oh, yes, of
1: course. Like interior design? and Of course, but I, I often had to not fabricate things, but, but find spots and spaces that also agreed with my sensibilities, mm-hmm. what I thought was beautiful or wonderful. It's funny, I, I'm thinking, you know, sometimes there'd be an opening of a restaurant and there'd be, uh, um, I was to photograph a woman who might've be the owner and the chef and there was plaster paint, ladders, everything, drop cloths around, but they wanted it to look like the, furnish, the finished basement, mm-hmm. the f- finished room. And I had to kind of sit, improvise the way a camera would catch just an edge of something. So that was, I, I was good at that. We'd, we'd figure it out. When I went to work with John Mealy, I had the opportunity of being the assistant that he'd take me along to these lunches that he would have with the photographers of the day. So a lunch, if they were in town, the one I remember vividly, had uh, Slim errands, Gene Smith, very serious photographer, who really died having been beaten up for a story he did on the uh, uh, the mercury damage of a Japanese factory to one of its workers, and he was beaten up and, and so on, and then not long after that died. So there was Eugene Smith, who was very serious about. Doing socially significant work, Slim Aaron's, who, who, who showed us the the, the stylish good life with the beautiful people, uh, some Magnum photographers, and life other life photographer. Try to think of the name of Shim. Uh, I think was what they called him. Uh, I forget what his real name. Uh, who was a war correspondent as as. Were all of them, to some degree. And uh, Elliot uh, Irwin and I were the youngsters. And Slim would tease Eugene Smith, who was so serious, mercilessly. It was just, uh, uh, but I think Good John, as some of us called him, because of G-J-O-N. Um, and he had a sense of this history. A community, Uh, and it was always very interesting. But but Slim was an outgoing character, and I think he was to this cafe society or high society uh, amusing, and he set things up just incredibly. He would. If they own a lot of antiques, he would have them bring them all out on the lawn with their five different, you know, special dogs, have them pose with all their possessions. He just had, he had a way about it, that just made it all work for him. But seeing him and teasing Gene Smith, it was sort of unfair because Gene Smith had, was taking a moral position on many things.
0: Was it the photographic community was it competitive?
1: Well, it was friendly, but it, it also it, there were little, little back scratching incidents, you know. Uh, that that was they were well established, and we were. I saw, in I think maybe Vogue,
0: a mention of your flowers series. <laughs> and Was that that was just like a personal project you work on?
1: Well, it started out of food, out of a food business thing. Got into flowers, I don't know, and then. When I was on different assignments, I sort of did that, then I kept doing more of them, and then I had a little exhibit of them. And how did Hampton Style come around? Oh, you know, Nikki Denhoff was the art director of House and Garden, and she really was like a mentor. I think I got into working on that. She'd been a glamor, I did something with glamor. She got up there, and I went to see her, to see about working for her or something. And they gave me objects to photograph in the studio. I think I came and said, you know, this is getting very boring. So then they, she took a chance and gave me something that might have gone to, uh, you know, some of the famous interior designers. And I did very well. So then she started hiring me. And then uh, she lived out here. And she, she was very kind to me. She liked my work and very supportive. And somebody, this, uh, John Esten, needed a photographer for this book, if he suggested me. Mm-hmm. And John Esten and I did not get along at all. <laughs> he thought he knew he'd been in advertising. I knew he wasn't editorial. There was somebody who'd done advertising for the shelter books or something. And he'd look at something and say, now take it, and it wasn't that. all. There'd be a lot of garbage around that would make the picture not look mm-hmm. very good or it didn't have a sense of the architecture. or We just, it was hardly a thing we agreed about. He even tried to get rid of me, and I had a very sick husband at the time. But I went down there and... Uh, just told them I, I had an agent who was his agent. That was a bad idea. I mean, I just said, fine, she could be my agent. And I just got up and said, this means such and such to me, namely uh, that I am still working, even though I have a sick husband. Don't you want to just take off and take, you know, take care of your husband? Uh, I see it, as as something essential in my comeback, and uh, uh, you try to get rid of me, and I will sue the bejesus out of you, both. Mm -hmm. And things off, and I walked out, and we continued. (laughs) (laughs) It was the only time I usually am very even tempered. Mm -hmm. You had a lot going on.
0: Well, yeah.
1: Anyway, it, it turned out. It sold out, uh, but it had, it had a good publisher and it had, it was a selection, the title alone made it valuable, but there were some very good pictures in it. And, and when did you started working for House and Gardens, had that been Oh, I did that 70s before, and before and 80s? yeah, I think so, yeah.
0: Do you have any preference over people, still lives, interiors, or did you just like doing them all?
1: Well, they were all, I love challenges. In those days, you did everything you were. Did props. I arranged somehow through somebody I knew in Vermont for two guys to bring down a truckload of colorful leaves, but they got wet and they had to stay up all night. Drying them? Drying them because they'd lose their color. And then they didn't run it in color. <laughs> you know, we never signed a thing with these they just call me up and say, you know, we have this assignment, mm-hmm. uh, but do you want it? I said, yes. So, uh, what's this, you know, when do you need it? Here's some phone numbers. They're going, I'd send them a bill.
0: Did you at least go
1: over how much you were going to charge no, or anything? No, we had no. set page rate. Mm-hmm. No, everything worked. I mean, it was okay. It was very... Casual. Mm-hmm. Did you ever like officially retire, or did you just no, move slowly? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, not so slowly. I st- I stopped. This, the phone stopped ringing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I never had an agent, you know, to get things going. Mm-hmm. When did the phone stop ringing? I would say about nineteen. I would say about nineteen ninety ninety two. Although sort of dwindled down. Uh, I had opted out of big production food and so on because of husband's Mm -hmm. health conditions. Then that year, I began some... 91 or 92, some... Is that when the cancer things began? I don't remember. But something in there where... uh, I couldn't really uh, do the work. Did I have any revival? I must have, but I don't remember.
0: <laughs> so I was wondering sort of when, you know, about your creative process, like when, you know, you're approaching a job
1: or a shoot, how did you, yeah, how did you approach it? I try not to do too much pre-planning because I think, when you get there, it's never quite what you had expected. And one has to be open to what is going to occur and what you're going to see and in what position it's in and how it's going to that compose itself into two ba- dimensions from three dimensions and where the light is coming from. Uh, I do indeed try, if it's a location to go to the location and see where North, South, East and West is and where the sun would be coming from at a certain time. But again, then it's overcast or when you go on the location hunt, uh, it was overcast. You don't really see what's going to happen and light and just what angle it's coming from and how it hits the subject is all very important to me. Uh, and I almost want to be well rested Anxious to go ready and to be quickly responsive to anything. And of course, I've tried to read up on the subject, see location shots or see something. What I do is such a combination of subject, whether it's a still life and there's a subject, or a person. And I love doing people. It's a combined effort. Somehow, I have to modestly win over their cooperation, and the best prep is doing something that so I'm not going to be nervous, and in a way, just being uh, explaining how I work or trying something out. And I think of uh, a famous thing about Brassai, how he he uh, made people comfortable with him, he would drop things or the camera would seem to fall apart. Well, I didn't do it deliberately, but that would happen to me because I'd be a bit nervous. And uh, somehow it's almost like you have to disarm your subject. And it isn't really a plot on my part, it's just I can't help it. I, I, I feel so inept that I can't just walk in there and take a perfect picture that somehow this rapport has to be established, even if it's only for ten minutes, you know, that that you have something where you realize you're in equal terms making this picture. I found like with a celebrity or famous person telling them how wonderful they are or saying how you love this or that it's a little irrelevant, because they know, <laughs> and they know that's why you're there and, and they know also generally that they'd love to have a picture where they look themselves <laughs> uh that doesn't mean necessarily beautiful, but i it's it's the prepping is very I try to have the equipment in order you know the 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 batteries charged, and the uh is uh, wiped, and but even if I don't, um, somehow getting it together there with the person isn't bad, you know, if it's setting up the tripod or having assistance. Very often I have an assistant because I'm not terribly good at camera side, you know, like bedside manner, mm-hmm. camera jokes or performance to uh, uh, get the uh, the subject relaxed or laughing or something, so sometimes I'll bring a, a, I'll call it a boy toy or a girl toy, it'll be over my shoulder. I can sort of fetch things for me, look at the the thing, be be charming, and relax help relax the subject. That's for people, and I loved having this. system, even a still life where somebody could move to the still life if I'm shooting from a long distance which I like to do to get a flattened perspective which I love it's more oriental than mm-hmm. American than, than than western renaissance and um, I'd have them just move something of you know a half inch to the right and a little and so on it, it's not just going in and finding there might be a lamp in the background it, it has an annoying white shade that's Disturb your focus on the subject or want it moved so I like having somebody around to be my legs doing that then as you fuss sometimes explaining what you're doing uh, the subject gains more respect for you for caring about what you do so it's more I try to keep my own spontaneity alive and it, it's that's it That's that's it, sometimes I bring equipment that I never use. And I love natural light and reflectors. But sometimes I'm finding now with uh, digital cameras that can do so much. It could be a whole, it it takes care of, uh, there's so many ways of lightening areas. I, I don't do it much. I'm rather pleased with what natural light does. But it has so much potential. That I'm thrilled with it. The only thing is that the, the cameras are so complicated, they're, they're sometimes defying me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So anyway, that's my story. You
0: know, before digital, did you prefer doing shooting film or slides?
1: I would shoot slides rather than uh, a negative color, mm-hmm. because I was, working, I was working for publications, and they would then translate. What I had to that, and the the codachrome and the ectochrome had richer, more stages in the color uh molding
2: mm-hmm.
1: than I don't know, we, we just never used negative film. I just I think that the little pictures that came back were were useless were, were not useful for publication. And you couldn't really read the negatives, so we we worked with positives, and we worked with very low-speed film. We could push Kodachrome a stop or two, which we did. It was very dependent on uh, Eastman Kodak. (laughs) (laughs) Did you prefer color to black and white? No, black and white has its its aspects. I loved black and white. I'm not hung up on it i love the uh, um when light is sort of broken up by mm-hmm. uh uh whatever it is that makes it into like stars yeah. and spangles and things sequins. uh and I love the depth of some blacks and black and white and so on but uh i approached i came from painting
2: mm-hmm.
1: and engraving and um, oils and watercolors and all their different aspects. And to me, the camera was simply another art tool and an art tool that got me out into the world. At the time that I went up to Yale to be an artist, you weren't taught how to make it a business as it began to be with artists, in a way, becoming groups of artists like abstract expressionists who would meet or galleries that would would sponsor them and take the whole group of the Abstract Expressionists and and show them either together or separately. In a way, they they attended to business, keeping up, as did Braque and Picasso and Matisse and the artists and and, and that great uh, generation of artists. And I didn't see it, it, was, it seemed to be that everyone, women and men, were struggling in their own studios with their, themselves, their souls, and, and the business of art just somehow fell on them. But the communication, the loneliness of it was something I didn't, uh, I didn't want to be part of. So I was looking to um, get out in the world. And photography, and photojournalism seemed, seemed the way. Did you continue to do any painting? I would switch sometimes. I would go back for a season, mm-hmm. a few months where I'd be painting or drawing. and uh, uh, But then photography really did take over. I sometimes think of that. There are times I, I, I want to draw or paint, mm-hmm. but I, I really haven't. So... Uh,
0: were you ever interested in doing any sort of moving, like moving images?
2: Really
1: very. And I did uh, uh, get a digital uh, uh, camera and did do a little. I love the idea of things entering from sides, tops, bottoms. And I didn't pursue it because uh, the single image was where my work was. Mm-hmm. It was by livelihood. I don't know. I just never... I, I didn't pursue it. I, I would love to do... so. I'm, I'm quite enchanted by the apple having this movement that you get on some stills and then it, it settles into a still. Mm-hmm. So you get a little bit of a before or you get I I don't know whether you get an after. But I, I, I love the effect. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting. I... I um, I think there's so little time I'm not sure I'll get a chance to go into motion picture. <laughs> yeah, I
0: mean that's the problem there's just too much to do always, right? Too much right. to learn, too many projects to try. That's right. Um, but uh-huh. you've been able to, you know, accomplish so much like even just this Ireland book we were looking at
1: and uh, That's you... a love letter. It's it's sort of not really a book about Ireland and all of Ireland, it's just Friends that I made and things that I did. It has so much about the horse country because I have a stepdaughter who raises horse... Somehow has ended up... She is now the the leader or the co-leader. It's called Master of Hounds of the Galway Hunt. Oh, wow. Which is quite a, quite an honorable position. And so I, I sort of made a cover and went and followed her on a hunt or two. And there's a lot about the, uh, there are a lot of Guinnesses, but that's like uh, Kennedy's in the United States. There are a lot of them. It's a, it's just a love letter to people who were so nice to me and who became my friends. Uh, because I, I'm learning that what is the personal is the most interesting thing. When you, you have a, a sort of personal feeling about something, mm-hmm. other people get it. The earliest images feel so, the, what, they're from
0: 1968, the earliest? Yeah, they're earliest yeah. there? so incredibly evocative. The landscapes are so beautiful. I've never actually been to Ireland, even though I grew up in England, and it's so beautiful. It's rich you. green. And you
1: first went when you were living in London? Well, I went uh, prior to that. I, I uh, uh, kept marrying Irishmen. <sighs> the first one had a harp on his passport of the United States. That marriage didn't last long, but it was a long relationship and he was very literary uh and handsome and uh then the second one we didn't marry for a very long time but we were best friends and we were uh, uh, each other's main person and we sort of were mostly in each other's lives for a long time and he was an american irish and i loved his self-effacing humor and uh, he had a lot of good points from his heritage, from being an American and being um, of Irish descent. And we had wonderful times together. And we had gone on a trip there. And I had, had I gone on my own? Well, I went on a, uh, uh, when I worked for British Vogue, they sent me to Ireland to do a story on Ireland because I was then writing and photographing and i did and it and it, it became a big story as i was leaving i decided i wanted to go back to america uh, that was that was the core of that book mm-hmm. uh, that, that that moody stuff that you first yeah. saw where i just had a car and myself and and went just drove wherever wherever the road took me mhm and then as I did that and connected with people, I was invited you know, for dinner or a lunch or to see that one, and why don't you go say hello to so-and-so? He has a wonderful little castle, and this one has horses, this one has dogs, whatever. And so I got to, to see a lot and to know people around the country. So, uh, and, and many other things then conspired, and I wrote a very romantic piece at that time which was too romantic, so I didn't just publish that with the pictures. Mm. Uh, I put together something else, you know, to try to talk about the people in the book. I, I wish I had done something about the people in the women's book, but you know, it's very hard it, it, for me. The writing is either goes quickly or I'm I have writer's block. Mm. It seems to be no in between. Whereas photography, I just have to do it. <laughs> The moment is there; you have to do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what was what was your role at British Vogue? What was the? Well, they just told me, "Come aboard! You know, we'd like you to work for us. Uh, we'll get you all these papers, and uh, uh, why don't you show up at the studio tomorrow morning?" <laughs> and I did a number of covers, mm-hmm. and I, which went on to be in on Italian Vogue and French Vogue and. I did, uh, the first issue that they, they had me work on was called the Luxury Issue. And uh, I, I did a little still life in which I had this nutcracker and there was a gold walnut from Asprey with some little f- picture frames in it. And I put the royal family in the picture frames and then put it in the nutcracker. So I had a little bit of humor and I had a purse that was from uh, Bucciolati with its gold rim and diamonds, and that was open, and a pill case <laughs> had opened, and the pills came. So I had the fertility, you know, the, the uh, uh, anti-fertility pill and the um, uh, some other uh, uh, psycho pills mm-hmm. that were popular then, spilling out of it. So there, there were little commentaries in this still life, and it was a two-page, beautiful two-page, spread about these these golden objects, but a little twist on it. Then I think the uh, the boys, David Bailey and the others, I never met them, but they weren't happy about me joining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think of what I heard. Uh, and uh, there wasn't much help in the studio. I mean, there seemed to be some clothes that arrived that were insanely beautiful and strange with feathers and and furs and whatnot, and models, and we sort of played around and did things and as best we could. And I didn't want to use, I I was only photographing with natural light then. And the slow fit color film, I I could barely get, uh, I'd have to tell you, I could barely get an F2.8 at a 30th of a second, or or less, 15th -hmm. of a second. Uh, to be, have the correct lighting from the skylight and the reflectors. But I shot with that on a tripod, and sometimes they were a little blurry, but they often were so beautiful. The natural light was lovely, but it was not very much of it. It would have been much easier with digital mm-hmm. now. But uh, the results were very attractive, and the still eyes stayed still for me, so that was fine so i i did that and then wasn't too thrilled with becoming a party photographer although it gave me an excuse to be at all sorts of interesting parties then they sent me off to ireland for this to do an irish story Mm -hmm. Uh, i think it was just to get me out of the office because uh although we spoke in english the english and i uh I didn't understand their mores. If if you if uh, Miller sent me down, said, "Oh, go down to the lab and tell them we're, we're, we we need that right away." Well, I was supposed to go down and say, uh, "Well, if you can, I know it's hard, but perhaps you might be." And I didn't realize I had to do that protocol. I'd say. Uh, I, uh, uh, what was Bill's first name again? Beatrice. Beatrice, Beatrice says she's in a hurry. <laughs> can You know, here it is, can you... And they, their backs would stiffen, mm-hmm. and they say, if we can. I'd say, if you can. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the answer. <laughs> and so I had to learn the ways, mm-hmm. which I wasn't too good at. Uh, so you know, it was interesting. It was, but the, the, this wonderful connection to Arderman came out mm-hmm. of that. And I came back with a Sassoon haircut, where I had a half inch of hair on one side, and about five inches on the other. <laughs> His latest cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very. I was very uh, uh, very styled in 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 the times, So they 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 were extreme. You know, this was really the beginning of uh, Mary Quant and uh, Ozzy Clark. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zandra Rhodes. All of these original people of the 60s were just cresting, just beginning. And uh, I had a wonderful time. I came back to New York and everything felt... I seemed fresh to New Yorkers and uh, uh, and New York seemed fresh to me. And uh, I discovered uh, I was taken to a doctor who had a vitamin shot that would really help inspire me and my eyebrow went up, my internal suspicion went up and at that point I had connected with, I think I had connected with New York Magazine before I left and I reconnected and I would go to lunch with the editor Clay Felker and give him a list of situations or thoughts I had for stories that I'd encountered. And this seemed like a hot one. Uh, what could the magic vitamin be? And so I got involved in an investigative reporting event that was amazing. When I finally produced the final product, it was such a hot story uh, that, uh, of course, we found out The medical examiner of New York helped me. We found out that the magic... I became a guinea pig, and that was fun. And the the magic vitamin was amphetamine. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had this amphetamine experience, and it was stimulating. It was like caffeine to the second power. I ended up, you know, on all sorts of... uh, every major television show, every interview, and so on. Uh, But... uh, Somehow a book offer, which I couldn't handle, then wiped me out for a while. And I realized that I'm, I'm a photographer, not a writer, and that it just took too much time. And I never did produce the book. I went on, went back to more pure photography. But, but I missed out on a few... Uh, well, I was trying to write the book... I was missing out like Alex Lieberman wanted to have lunch with me. I never made, I never called and made the appointment, which is kind of crazy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I didn't have much advice about what might come of these things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so uh, in any event, I continued on my, my path. Were you pleased that later on two of the
0: doctors that you wrote about were jailed? Did you feel like you helped people,
1: like your work had? Uh, I had a funny feeling about that. I felt... I loved the... I had liked the idea that maybe doctors could head off... people who wanted drugs, that maybe doctors had there could help head them off from personal disaster or death. But I began to realize that maybe they couldn't. And I really... Didn't feel like justified in helping them uh, be taken off the street. These were doctors who were dealing with people in the theater, in in uh, bands, you know, in uh, uh, rock music, tense theatrical careers, and they really needed something to help them through these their high energy needs and somehow i felt there was a role for them and i don't know why i thought like a slap on the wrist was enough or exposure so mm-hmm. that the people who went to them would know they were in danger but i i was uncomfortable i don't think that my writing about them Caused their investigation, and I knew that because at the time that the Doctor Feelgood piece was a cover story, came out in New York Magazine. I was in California photographing children's clothes for Ladies' Home Journal. There could be nothing more distant Mm -hmm. from the drug scene of these doctors and you know the rock scene and the story I was doing. When I came back from a day of shooting and found these calls from Dick Cavett who had a radio show Barbara Walters who had a television show and all of them seeking to put me on their programs I couldn't go on, I was a California shooting children's wear for Ladies Home Journal <laughs> when, when they called I, I couldn't do it I did, they did put me in the following week when I got back uh, but uh, I really didn't feel that it was B and I know it wasn't me because, who would expose them because waiting in the New York magazine office and of course none of us were really in the New York magazine office anyway. Mm-hmm. They called me and said somebody's waiting and it was somebody from the DEA who wanted to talk to me mm-hmm. about these various doctors. And they already had they were already had were on its tail and and That uh, member of the DEA, he was himself a jazz musician. So they knew about them. And I thought just the exposure was warning enough. I still don't know where I stand. Dr. Warren, the dentist, he he was a character. He had SM costumes, sadomasochistic costumes of whips and masks and whatnot hidden away in some closet. I don't know what he did with those. <laughs> but, but he was a character.
2: <laughs> wow.
0: Yeah, I hadn't realized till I read your article and the follow-up and then did some more research that Mark Shaw had died from the amphetamine. I obviously know his work,
1: and I hadn't realized. Yeah, he had beautiful work. Yeah. He, he did the best photographs of the Kennedys. He introduced the Kennedys to, to Dr. Feelgood. Mm-hmm. Yes, I felt bad, but nothing I wrote. They were in touch with me to try to suppress the article, and their lawyer was in touch with the magazine, and that's why we took the names out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We had the names of the doctors, Dr. A, B, and C, in the article, mm-hmm. but there was a leak a uh, very important lawyer was in touch with the editor in chief of New York Magazine. Threats of lawsuits, and so we took the names out. I think Mark Shaw knew the danger. I had been on the phone with Eddie Fisher, who was now kind of a basket case. I mean, he's, he he was his speech was impaired. Um, a doctor of his who was a friend, did that, and this was attributed to amphetamine use. Taking one of these doctors off the street, uh, maybe it's better to take the distributor of amphetamines off the street. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I I just went into it, found out about it, wrote about it. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting question you're asking me about responsibility on this or feeling good about about putting him in jail. Uh, Frankly, I just, well, that's the risk Mm -hmm. that they take, yeah. Yeah.
0: But I guess the whole process of trying to do the book made you realize that investigative journalism and writing were not your path? Well,
1: I think I lacked proper training. The weird thing is I decided I'd go to California and try to see what there is there. And strange enough, as I checked into the, uh, I decided to stay in Bel Air. I had a cousin there, that area, at the Bel Air Hotel. I think that's what it's called, beautiful, one wonderful. Yeah. As I was checking in, there was a guy who looked like Elvis Presley checking out. And I almost said, oh, can I, can I buy you a drink and maybe you can help me with my... I didn't is not that a shame? He might, have, he might have accepted, I might have really gotten to the heart, of, or not at all. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he wouldn't have talked to me about about the drugs that he was on yeah. <laughs> and his doctor. It sort of was known, uh, and people would refer to different people say, "Oh, yes, you ought to talk to so-and-so she she. You know, was the patient of Doctor blah 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 blah. And there's this scene and that scene. It, it would have been interesting. There, there were so many stories that were fascinating. Mm-hmm. It could have been quite a nice book, <laughs> just with the the the, the fantasy stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but I didn't didn't manage it. Yeah. Did you enjoy doing fashion photography? I got a kick out of it. Yeah. yeah. I love challenges and fashion has its challenges.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It depended on the clothes, but uh, the fashion photogra- models kind of had a clue me in on what is expected. Now, the men always were a little in awe of them. and just couldn't wait to get a photograph of them naked. Mm-hmm. And they often obliged as a nice gesture. And they, did, they were very beautiful. They were very proud of their bodies. They were a little disappointed that they said, come on, Susan, take a picture of me. And they flashed their nakedness. So I did. <laughs> but I, uh, I never did a really great nude. I don't know why. I just didn't see them as apples that you moved around on a set. <laughs>
0: Having just gone downstairs and seen all of your boxes, of oh, the bo- oh, let me
1: tell you about that. There are so many boxes because I'm looking for a moment that I considered film was the cheapest, least important. How much film I use was the cheapest, and least important thing in the shoot. Mm-hmm. I was looking for some gesture, some angle, some something where it would look. Beautiful. Now, what looked beautiful probably had something to do with my art training and what I had seen, you know, from the Leonardo da Vinci, the Madonna, some of his classic faces. Yeah, Mona Lisa. To Picasso. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd recognized something. Now, this recognition of what beauty is, I think, is based on a Western taste. And yet, and again, what it, in Oriental art has been presented to us satisfies a Western aesthetic. So I'm just lighting these things up with a Western aesthetic, but that's where I come from, and that's what I've seen. Uh, and so I guess that inspires Even when I photograph a swan, mm-hmm. I, I want sort of that perfect pose, that perfect expression. Of what a swan is, with the twist of its neck and its head, it's be, it's just something that, or I'll see something that just makes me like. I think of sometimes with the swans, uh, I think of Rubens or Titian, mm-hmm. and some of the Greek myths. You know, the
0: uh, Leda, Leda, and, Leda, Leda and
1: the swan. Yes, and Yeats and so on. So um, I look somehow when I see that, and usually. The most photogenic people don't have deep set eyes uh, they have to be lit specially because mm-hmm. they they come out of black holes and so on you just so so I just would since i'm looking for both moment gesture beauty, I think beauty as I know it is something i I automatically look for because I think it is rare and and pleasing, mm-hmm. so not just to an audience, but to me. So I just don't care how much film I use, waiting or doing it. If it sort of begins to resemble what I'm looking for, mm-hmm. I shoot, and then I'll improve it. Or then I don't know the quirkiness of film, so I might be bracketing, get making it darker or lighter. But I try to get, in the original, negative, or positive, as in uh, most everything, that I want, so I just shoot a lot. So the, 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 I think the size of the archive would be smaller if I didn't shoot that way. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, since you can't go back once you're you're there as a photographer, I shoot some pictures which seem irrelevant, but but I, they just catch my eye. But later on, they're interesting because they maybe show place or something, I, I try to stay as open as I can to my surroundings and, and what I value in them.
0: Yeah, have you discovered images that you don't remember even looking at, Have you, like when you've been
1: going back over the years? No, recently? I really know what I shot. Mm-hmm. I have discovered because of quirks in giving things back that I didn't shoot that, <laughs> because it's just I shot that. No, strangely enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, I pretty well, yes, there are some that just, uh, yes, that does seem, oh, I shot that. (laughs) I generally have not gone with a pre-planned story. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would pre-set up a situation and then have the model or something come and be in a certain place. But I had a very interesting experience with, pretty famous model where I decided who's interested in photography so I set something up it was for we were displaying sheets it was for a uh, promotion for Wamsutta and uh, I set something up and she was not the focus but she would add elegance and beauty to the picture which I explained to her set it up on a tripod I had her come and look through the lens and say okay put yourself where you think You would do the most for this picture to give it a sense of grace, style, elegance, and sensuality. She looked, she walked back to a particular spot, hoisted herself up onto this bureau, sat there with her back, and it was perfect. She had picked out the spot I had left for her Mm -hmm. to be in and sat there and did just the right gesture. It It was very interesting. I think she liked being respected for that, mm-hmm. and um, she was 100% right, Yeah. so. How much? Dickinson, it was D- Janis yeah. Dickinson. Yeah. I was
0: wondering, because I've seen yeah. some of her photos with the Wemsetta. Yeah. Um, uh, how much control did you have over the, which images were published? Did uh, the well, editor... I would
1: give them. I would pre-select, mm-hmm. mostly you know, the variety that we did. And then if they didn't like that, and we had we, we might go back and look at it. Uh, I very seldom had to reshoot. I don't remember a reshoot because mm-hmm. I would cover it in a variety of ways that, that would allow an art director to make choices. Oh, So who were some of your favorite people that you've shot? Who was some, oh, that's an interesting question. Oh... need a list to look down. I got a kick out of Robert Frost, who didn't know I was shooting him. Oh, really? (laughs) I had a telephoto lens at a, not just any baseball game, it was uh, the Nationals. And so I was facing where he was sitting and also at a graduation. The cabinet member, Donna Shalala, she was a little stiff at first, this is before she was, that she was head of banking, I think. And she had some theatricality in her and I gave her a straw hat to play with, just something to and we got this wonderful, cheerful, lively shot, I liked that. Verushka was a wonderful model, as was uh, uh, Maude Adams, was a delight to work with, as was Dickinson, Janice Dickinson, Cheryl Teague was always this uh, here she is with this incredible body, but she could be the all American girl and she just these it was so easy working with them they were so good
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and it wasn't that it wasn't an ugly angle it just was they could project being real in this unreal situation
2: mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how they they if they had a little more acting training, whether they could be actors, actresses. Uh, I loved Gregory Peck, he was a delight. Uh, John Lennon was such fun. He made up songs, uh, the writer Betty Rollins and Yoko and I had all gone to Sarah Lawrence, so he made up a song strumming on the guitar about us. He was fun and nice and generous with his spirit at his time. And very loving towards Yoko, there were so many adventures that evolved around, revolved around the shoots, mm-hmm. especially the uh, important characters who were not in theater but in politics. They were very interesting. I think they were less used to having a camera pointed at them. Mm-hmm. And once they got used to it, they forgot it was there. So Garrick Brown was delightful, wonderful. I mean, I love the photo, uh, the portrait of Mary McCarthy that's in your book. Oh, yeah. She was not particularly a willing subject, which was fine because she's crusty and a curmudgeon. Mm -hmm. And I didn't mind her looking like a curmudgeon. And so I placed her like an apple in a still life.
0: Yeah, in front of the painting. Yeah, and, all... they, and her
1: clothes were the same. And her look, she looked like one of the the, 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 the the fathers of our country. And there were three of them in the painting behind her. And that was extremely carefully lit so that the color of the background, mm-hmm. you'd see the color of that, the, the significant. you'd have the depth of field where that would be sharp and she would be sharp. So that's... That took me about two hours, maybe an hour and a half, to light so that she would look all right and the painting would show and there was kind of flat all over and the color would be brilliant.
0: On a shoot like that where you went to someone's home, would you have had an assistant? Oh with yes, help? I
1: had a wonderful, wonderful, became a wonderful photographer and died very young. And that's uh, Theo, I think it was Theo Weisberg. She was wonderful. Mary was very formal with me, but it didn't matter. It was fine, she, I wanted her at her typewriter in her desk. I wanted her in the kitchen doing something. And I just wanted some different scenes at the dinner table. I explained that we wanted all these different things. And she went along. Um, she, I think she would not have, if it wasn't for West, who she was eat, married to at this time, who thought it would be a good idea? You know, she went. Uh, she uh, uh, and but the winner of the whole shoot was that picture of her with the four, the the, the forefathers. I'm glad she accepted it and didn't cause any problem. There was a format. There was the most interesting scene was her with which nobody published. And I'd love to do a story with it along with the picture. She was with. Uh, um, very close friend now, with the author of Sleepless Nights, who was married to uh, Lowell, the poet. Uh,
2: uh,
1: Hardwick, uh, what? Elizabeth Hardwick. Elizabeth Hardwick. The two of them were like two schoolgirls who were secret buddies who could just send a signal, like look at the writer's shoes, and they'd start giggling, <laughs> <laughs> and so on and so forth, and I. Caught this this conversation going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with with hardly anything being said, but a lot of giggles. Uh, and it, it, they were very special to each other. And Hardwick was very lonely at the time. I think we went out to dinner. We took her out. The assistants and me took her out to dinner. And then she realized that wasn't helping her loneliness and wanted to go home. They had Mary McCarthy and she had become... Bosom friends, right. and that that story of Elizabeth Hardwick and uh, uh, the poet. Would you fill me in on the name? Again? Robert Lowell. Uh, Robert Lowell. The portrait that I showed you of, uh, of Garrick. Gee, names are just flying out of my head. Uh, Brown. Garrick. Yeah, Garrick Brown, Debrone Garrick Brown, uh, was Robert Lowell married? Caroline His Blackwood. Cousin, that's yes. right. Okay. Blackwood. And there was a similar portrait of Blackwood about the same size. And. Because uh, she had been, yeah, she'd been married to Lucien Freud before. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So all of that tied back, mm-hmm. back tied together. As uh, Betty Friedan <laughs> was still on the lecture circuit and beginning to stutter over names in her memory. I learned something from her now that I am 89. I, uh, if I'm talking, and if I was going to give a talk, I would announce ahead of time that, that uh, uh, important nouns like people's names, I know them, but it, it, it takes the bookkeepers in my mind longer to find them. Just shout them out at me as we talk. <laughs> So that's what I think I have to do now. Mm-hmm. So, And you became good friends with Betty, right? From I did, you shoot but first, a, uh, no, uh, no, I think... Uh, I think I had friends who would do her as she was gathering together, her commune. And uh, that was the house that they would rent, or, you know, single or even some married or uh, uh, intellectuals that they knew that were successful enough to invest heavily in renting a very grand house for the summer Mm -hmm. and vacationing together. Uh, And there were very funny things. Uh, Erica Abiel has written a a comedy, uh, uh, a satire on it, now that's out, called The Commune. And it's, it's very funny. She's sort of taken some of these real people, combined them with others, and had some very interesting characters sharing a house and games. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're games of, uh, um, they were very funny things that happened. And, and anyway, I, I so I met Betty, I think one summer. And um, I was not involved with her politically, except I did go with a group that, um, she invited me to join in a group that was going by airplane, by a plane from East Hampton to Washington for the march. Mm-hmm. So we had an easy time of it uh, and came back. We did a lot of gossiping. Um, she, uh, we I was her driver, you know, I'd help her go to parties. She wasn't so good at driving. Her eyesight wasn't so good. And uh, we were cruising, looking for some guy that might be Mr. Right. <laughs> you know, A-list parties—isn't that the place to meet them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so <laughs> we we did that. We we really never discussed the women's movement or, or all the problems and all, all the issues. We just were we just went off and had fun. So it, was, it was great. And then she asked me to do a cover of her book. I, I did manage to get a very attractive picture of her. So uh, she sometimes was gruff and, and, and grumpy, but that was her nature.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: She was just out in the open about her emotions. And she was trained as a, by the labor movement to begin with, where you shouted a lot. Maybe her own household shouted a lot, so she shouted a lot. But she was interesting, and she was very exciting, intellectually exciting, to the men she met. It it was very interesting phenomena. Um, So anyway, that we had some very we had fun. Strangely enough, (laughs) but I had to keep it from Gloria. (laughs) Yeah, and you'd been friends with Gloria since the '50s, right? Right. So, it 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 all worked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> I don't think I could get them in a picture together, but mm-hmm. it was it was it was interesting. In the
0: introduction to your women book, you wrote a little bit about how you were around the sort of the figureheads of the women's movement, but. You didn't, at the time, consider yourself a feminist or part of it. I,
1: I didn't really, I, uh, and yet I could have attributed my archive heavy with photographs of women to discrimination against me as a photographer, as a woman, giving me secondary jobs mm-hmm. to photograph the secondary population of successful people, which are women. It's very interesting. I think the only time I got an assignment to do an important man uh, from people was from a woman picture editor. Mm. But there were a lot of other assignments I didn't get that were of more powerful public figures. So, but, but the collection is so wonderful. And it's purely accidental what I happen to be assigned, or when I meet somebody that I just wanted to photograph.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So uh, it was a mixture of things, you know. Uh, It was a very, very wonderful period for me. I was very fortunate that some of the male art directors were being uh, educated enough to want to show diversity and hire a woman. Uh, And then then some women would hire me. It depended on their self-confidence. Mickey Denhoff was the art director of House and Garden, and that was very helpful. House and Garden and movie companies uh, were very supportive. Uh, I was regularly photographing for them, Uh, and she was very supportive in, in getting me uh, giving me jobs that might have gotten been given to uh, uh, some of the famous interior photographers, let me had a go at them. Uh, I developed that arm of my capacities. I loved I loved the challenge of different, different. It used to be if you were an interior photographer, that was it. If you were a portrait photographer, mm-hmm. that was it. If you photographed fashion, that was it. You know, you you went to a particular. Uh, category and I loved trying all of it. I really wasn't looking for which one is my metier I just thought all of them were a part of the process so it was one stop shopping.
0: Yeah and I love I love when there was like a shoot you know some of the things like the Vogue shoots where it would be you would do a portrait and you do the interior and the food and the flowers you were sort of... Not only
1: did I photograph yeah. them but we did the bouquets and we made the flowers come. I learned how to make flowers come back to life by putting them in a bathtub, you know, hammering on their stems, putting them in a bathtub of cold water, and maybe an hour or two later they revived. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah that, that was the trick that the stylist did. We didn't have stylists, we just, the, the editor, the, the photographer, the assistant, we'd all try to do something. Or we'd send somebody out shopping. I preferred shopping for objets myself because I was so interested in, in products. Mm-hmm. I, I loved to look at pottery and, and, and china and so on and see, see what was happening and what, what would suit the situation. Yeah, that's right. That's just what we did. We, we did everything. Then we began to have... There were shoots where we had a food stylist, a tabletop stylist a cook, an editor,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a photographer, my assistant, maybe two. It was, it was an army. I kind of got a kick out of it.
0: I mean, it sounds like a really fun, collaborative process. It could be, as long as everyone's on the same wavelength, right?
1: Well, they all weren't always on the same wavelength. <laughs> <laughs> it would test my diplomatic skills. hmm I grew up with my mother having the Barbara Kafka book cookbooks. Oh, she was the intel. She was the Martha Stewart intellectual mm-hmm. of the food. That is amazing. Oh, that's
0: amazing. so. I remember,
1: and then you know, obviously
0: coming later, and then realizing those are your photos. It all sort oh of ties it well, together. You know, oh, in my, in my mind was
1: wonderful, and she had a husband who was a psychiatrist and head of the psychiatric association of. And we went on a trip. We went on trips to California. We went to Italy. Uh, she was amazing. And she would get... I have a picture of her in the woman's book. The Italian printers took out the flush going up. But you'll get a kind of uh, orgasmic flush of red going up her neck when she drank a delicious, wonderful wine. And we were in a wine store. You'd see it rise at her neck. So I had a picture of this. But the Italian printers... You know, they adjust the photograph, yeah. they took it out, they thought it was an error. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. It's very funny. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> so, uh, but she was amazing, and I wrote a little story about her.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah she, she was amazing, yeah. I was warned that she would, you know, uh, knock my head off if I said one wrong thing to her. You know, or not accept me to be the photographer on some assignment, mm-hmm. and so I'm introduced. This is, and and uh, we got along famously. I think I found some obscure reference to something, <laughs> and I made the grade. <laughs> so she was terrific. Oh my goodness, I don't know about her microwave cooking. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely the
0: cookbook I really remember from my childhood, but uh, I don't know. You do remember that. I remember, yeah, Microwave Gourmet. I think my mother made a lot of things back for me <laughs> in the late 80s from that book.
1: Well, is it that, well, where were you then? Um, in Manhattan. In Manhattan. Yeah. So. Well, they had a house on 93rd, just off between Madison and 5th. And she had her professional kitchen. To, Then she started to get a commercial job. I I was at this point in my Olympic Tower apartment, and it was for root uh, root beer, or Hires root beer, or one of those root beers, and hot dogs or something. They'd hired her to do something. And we had to get a foam on the head of it, so we had to shake up the the root beer bottle, and then it would splash it. i splashed all over a wall. We we had a hard time cleaning it up. <laughs> we were doing this commercial shoot <laughs> in my apartment where I did a lot of shoots. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a condominium, and there were a bunch of people there. There was Mrs. Marcos, the Philippine president's mm-hmm. wife with all her shoes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There was Gucci, uh, there was an arms dealer. <laughs> there was me. And then there was somebody one floor above who must have been editing film because we had a party and someone got off at the wrong floor. They went to the equivalent apartment of, of mine and, like mine, the door was open, walked in. There was some photographic film equipment, sat down and waited at the party. It wasn't started. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who the tenant was, but it was someone else who was working in our apart, you know, in, mm-hmm. in his apartment or her apartment. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We never pursued it. But
0: uh, how long did you live in the Olympic Towers?
1: About uh, ten years, I think ten or twelve. It was a wonderful okay Fifty First Street. Mm-hmm. I had the towers of St. Patrick's in my window, floor to ceiling glass. It was, it was, it was wonderful. It, it wasn't the wonderful place I had down in the meatpacking district, which uh, my father had helped me convert to, you know, studio and living. And it was very beautiful. It had a brick wall, and it had um, uh, shutters, for you know, to close out the cold and the light of windows. You could fold them back into the wall, and it had... Uh, a little stove area, big open space, Hmm. circular staircase. It was wonderful. But the lease came up, it became very expensive. That area became very, uh, very, very uh, desirable in the arts. And um, my hot water heater had been tapped into and my water bills, heat bills were so extraordinarily high I said, I could live in one of these modern glass boxes for what it's costing me
2: mm-hmm.
1: here. Click. I began to look at the modern glass boxes and decided, just move. Mm-hmm. It was like a complete switch.
0: Having seen just ha- quite the volume of...
1: Um, the boxes, yeah, all the those boxes. boxes in my basement.
0: Yeah, I was, I was wondering if you've got an idea of Somewhere that you would want them to go,
1: like, you know, is uh, oh yeah, uh, we're talking now with Center for Creative Photography at University of what is it, Arizona? Um, They seem very serious. Uh, We know we're waiting for a letter from them. Some, I I just want a love letter, some affirmation of this because they're not quite ready to receive the work. But we are lined up there. I just feel, as a historian,
0: that it's very important that those well, go I'd somewhere, like, that they'll be, you know. Apparently they have exhibits, and... too, yeah.
1: of the work of the, the people they have. have yeah. A lot of names I don't recognize. You probably would. Um, uh, I was a great fan of Dorothea Lang, mm-hmm. And I did have time, a chance to spend time with her so that was uh, I was staying with her because of a a boyfriend who had been a photographer that and friend of hers. Mm-hmm. So it was such a wonderful small world at that time that I started out. I I met Homer Page at an ASMP meeting, American Society of Magazine Photographers. And we became lovers. And he was, uh, he was from the West, from California. Seemed very Western. And he had been a friend of Dorothy's. I entered a dance magazine contest. And uh, I'd gone out with uh, Elliot Irwin and Bruce Davidson to a dance hall. And I took a picture from some, we all had cameras. So I took a picture from a high up in some place. It was just right, it was somehow a, a man in a, in a zoot suit just sort of taking a bow, not a bow, but just like a, a part of a dance with a spotlight coming down on him. And I entered it in a dance magazine cover contest and it won. <laughs> the prize was a trip to California and Homer was out there staying with Dorothea, so he invited me to come stay with them. So I had a chance to meet her, and to be around when Angela Adams would come around for tea. So it really was—I didn't realize what an important experience it was at the time. Mm-hmm. But they were all very nice and very considerate of me. And, and uh, her big advice to me was not to marry Homer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just... was a depressed you know, he was a would get depressed, so. His photos are wonderful. What? His photos are wonderful, too. You know it, then. Yeah. I'd love to see them. I just... What, how do I get to see, see some of his work?
0: I mean, there's some, on, there's some online. I know, uh, I think, Howard Greenberg Gallery has his yeah. work. But just that one story, you're te- you, you, every person you mention is just, like, such a photography icon, right? I know. Like, they're amazing.
1: <laughs> it um, is amazing. But I'm not an icon, so there you are. No, I mean... <laughs> you are well, I wouldn't mind but
0: <laughs> no just I don't I don't think it is that easy
1: these days to yeah. have those kind of experiences where you're maybe not but there weren't very many uh women in photography and for some reason um Homer I found on my own just you know came up and sat next to him at the bar or whatever it was at this <laughs> photographer's thinks so, of and we started talking, but uh, Bruce, somebody at Esquire tried to put us together, and uh, another case, uh, uh, someone in John Mealy's studio tried to put me together with Bert Glynn because you know it seemed Harvard, Yale, and nobody was that famous then. They were just other photographers who were a little ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was the rare girl who wasn't, was still f- uh, free. <laughs> but it's true, they're all, they're icons. I mean, I, and photography just didn't, it wasn't that, it was not an art yeah. yet. You know, these were journalists. Um, I didn't ever meet Penn. I did meet Avidon once on I don't know the eleventh floor, whatever the executive floor is of uh, of Vogue. In an elevator, he he rushed around to see my face because I had a great outfit on. It was a British heavy raincoat and a tweed hat. And then he, I didn't, I I didn't, I didn't make the cut. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he moved away. But I never did meet him. Uh, you know, so. Circumstances.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But June Mickey, when I was working in Life magazine, mm-hmm. Lab, which didn't last very long, um, I met June Mickey and took him all around New York. And he did a little story f- on me for a Japanese magazine. I think I ran out of gas on Lexington Avenue <laughs> <Highway laughs> or something and pushed the car into a gas station. <laughs> it was fun. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of making a career of it and, and making a living at it, and you know, through thick and thin. and I'm proud of continuing to now work with my archive and see what I can do with the new technology. I think I may be most proud of simply my endurance mm-hmm. right now, and a uh, realistic but positive attitude. I think I was always so positive because I, you know, the beginning because I was a fool. <laughs> and now, uh, um, because I, I've been very lucky. I hope my luck continues. And I've been fortunate in my openness and in, in, in not having encountered too much danger.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I did refrain from going into a war zone because I know how mindless I am about my own safety. I somehow, I would have probably just stuck my head out to get a better angle when I shouldn't and get it shot off.
0: And do you have any advice
1: for any sort of photographers or creatives? I would say if your fortunes change to older ones and all your support system disappears, either they're fired, aged out and so on, figure your way out of it, go do some volunteer work, shooting, or if not shooting, to help some cause at least to explain some problem or some such as what I was beginning. I did a freelance, uh, unassigned story on autism and it was good, and it, it it got space, or it might get a book, or it might help. It might get something going that um, brings your, makes your talent useful. I would also say to beginning photographers, uh, pretend you're in the Renaissance and try to get a patron. And if you have good relations with your family, you can get just a minimal amount of support, that may be enough. get you on your way because it takes time to be recognized enough to uh, make even the barest of a living at it and volunteer for things Uh, volunteer for a political cause and offer your photo services volunteer for uh, something to help with uh, health or uh, an issue uh, such as a health issue that uh, need some explaining and pictures would help just offer your services don't just sit there mourning Mm -hmm. whatever losses you have or so and just get out if you're feeling depressed go out to a diner and you know just talk to somebody next to you over a cup of coffee just just move it that's about it thank you so much
0: for all of this it's been wonderful thanks again for listening to this conversation with susan wood On the website, I've put together a slideshow of her work along with a short bio. I have many wonderful conversations coming with models, fashion designers, photographers, and more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com. See you next time.